With that being said, I hope you're with me in Acts 11. We're going to be starting in verse 19, and we're just going to be reading all the way to the end of the chapter. I will give you about 10, 10 more seconds or so to get there. Again, Acts 19, or I'm sorry, Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Um, and I'm reading out of the ESV. All right, I hope you're ready. Acts 11, verse 19 says... Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, please make this passage clear for us. Open the eyes of our hearts today um, that we might see what you have for us today, that we might be edited by you today. Holy Spirit, please edify and build up the listeners today, all who are listening. I pray that any Anything that I say that is unhelpful or harmful um, would just be removed, would be forgotten quickly um, by those who are listening. And only, only what is edifying and is of you would remain. Please speak through me despite my weaknesses, despite my inadequacies, and help me to speak both truthfully and graciously. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my first job out of high school... I worked at a movie theater, um, a pretty high-end movie theater. Um, it was called Cinetopia, and the idea was to create a utopia for the visitors, for the, the guests, the customers. Uh, but working there was actually really terrible. Um, it was kind of ironic that you know the customers would come in, they'd see this nice shiny exterior, everything would be clean, and everybody would be kind of smiling and like, "Yeah, what can I do for you?" And you know, they'd go see these movies in really high definition, and we, you know, we had special special rooms where you could have like restaurant service. It was, it was all really nice and shiny. And the idea was that like customers could come in and you'd relax for a few hours and kind of forget about the outside world. Really shiny on the outside, really nice. But inside, um, those of us who worked it, it was really not good. <laughs> it was really terrible. It was the exact opposite of a utopia. And we all thought that was rather ironic. And the, this business, this, this corporation, like they... They engaged in a lot of shady practices, shady at best practices, and m most of them were probably illegal, honestly, but I was 18 and I didn't know. Um, and I, but I really needed this job. I couldn't really afford to be picky with this job because it was my first job out of high school. I was going to college <clears throat> in the fall and I needed to save up money uh, to be able to pay for housing and food and whatnot. And so I couldn't afford to be picky, needed the good reference too. So I, I worked it. Um, I did my best, and, but it was, it was not a good job. And the reason for that was because the owner, it started with the owner and, and the higher-ups, like his board, his, his, you know, however he had it set up, they engaged in really shady practices. Their, their goal was to make as much money as possible while cutting as many costs as possible, and that meant both financial and personnel-wise and everything. And it led to some it led to some really bad things happening with this company. They got close to going under a couple times just because it was bad. Um, and the reason, the reason I tell you this is because the, 
the character of this place, like the the yeah, the character of this of this this company reflected the character of the owner and like his higher ups, kind of members as you will, if you will. Um and they like they presented this nice shiny exterior, but on the inside they were doing everything they could to bend the law and cut corners. And that, that was reflected in how they ran their company. And that was that became apparent. And so we know this is true of businesses, of corporations, of organizations, and this is also true of churches. And so that, that leads me to my main point today, that the character of the church reflects the character of its members. And so this sermon has been a bit tricky to prepare because there's a lot that can be said today from this passage in, in Acts that we just read. Um, and I'm not going to cover everything that could be said because I imagine you all want to do something with your Sunday afternoon. Um, but I'm going to be trying very hard to go through what's important. Um, I'm also <laughs> going to be trying very hard to walk an appropriate balance between both grace and truth. There's a lot here that should convict us um, that I think we all need to hear and need to be reminded of and need to be encouraged with. Um, and it should challenge us today. Um, but I also want to run an appropriate balance by also being gracious. So, uh, truthfully gracious, as it were. And so the running question I want every single one of you who's listening um, just to be thinking through um, and to kind of have in your mind as we go through this is how am I being faithful in this area? Like how am I as an individual? Because I think sometimes we think, well, the church is doing okay and we kind of give up individual responsibility, but the corporate church is made up of individuals. And so that's kind of what I want us to be thinking through as we, as we jump into this. And so my... My first, my first point then, remembering that the character of the church reflects the members of the church, my first point is that the church must be visible and distinct. So look back with me at Acts 11, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read uh, the first like, two or three verses again. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one. <clears throat> except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So let's set the scene for what's going on here. If you've been following along with us, um, you'll remember that we were introduced to Stephen in Acts chapter 6, and in the next chapter, in Acts 7, he's martyred uh, for his faith, for standing before the council and telling them that they have missed the Messiah, that they rejected the Messiah while he was here on earth, um, and that they've always done that, that they're hard of heart, um, and that they need to repent of their sins, and so they kill him for that. They're angry at him, and they kill him for that. And Luke opens cha Acts chapter 8 with the phrase, um, now Saul approved of his execution, and after the death of Stephen, there arose a great persecution, um, and the church is scattered. And so Luke has kind of been giving us these individual kind of scenes um, of how, the, how Jesus' great commission to his disciples to go be his witnesses, to go make disciples of all the nations, but starting in Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. Luke's been giving us snapshots of how that's been playing out, how that's been, been working out. And so now Luke's kind of bringing us back to the 30,000-foot the view again. Okay, so remember, Stephen was killed, and a persecution happens, and so people just scatter. They run. They go. And so that's where we are now in verse 19. Those who were scattered over the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And notice it says that they they, a lot of them only spoke to Jews. So there's still kind of this confusion as to who this good news is for. Because remember, Israel's been thinking that, well, we're the chosen people, the oracles of God are for us, the message is for us. So there's still kind of this confusion as who is the good news for. But we see some of them, some of those who are, who are, who are spreading, um, specifically who come from Cyprus and Cyrene. So these are Hellenized Jews. So these are people who have converted to Judaism. They speak to Hellenists who are Greeks, who are non-Jews, essentially. 
and we see that the Lord blesses this effort. Because remember, Gunnar preached last week how Peter defends his case to the church and defends what God has called him to do in preaching the gospel to Cornelius and baptizing Cornelius and his household. So the gospel, God has now shown that the gospel is in fact for everyone. And so the Lord blesses this effort and this obedience. And notice the text, um, it says in verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And now I wanna give a little context about Antioch just so we understand how just, how kind of crazy this is. Antioch is a Gentile city, so it's, it's north of Judea. Um, it's not even on the fringes. It's, it's well and clearly Roman, um, Gentile. And it's the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. So you have Rome, the center of the empire, capital. They're the, great, they're the greatest ones. The second city, the second great city is Alexandria in Egypt. But the third city is Antioch. Antioch is this hub of cultures, maybe a generous word, but there was a lot of, um, a lot of moral depravity that went on here. But this, this is what Antioch is mo- known for. Just they, yeah, they're a hub of trade and commerce. They, a lot of people come there. And a lot of people come there to engage in um, just in the, just yeah, the moral depravity that is there. One, one a Roman um, philosopher um, was lamenting that the, just the, the depravity from Antioch found its way into Rome. Um, just the influence from that city was great. Kind of like the Las Vegas of its day, if you will. Um, but despite all that, you know, people who have gone there, who they're preaching the gospel as they go, but when I say preaching, they're not standing up in synagogues or in churches necessarily. They're just, they probably had to go just get regular jobs. Like, you know, they probably didn't get to go stand and preach in the synagogues like the disciples, like the apostles did. Um, they're just faithfully telling their friends, their coworkers, the people they run into, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what, what he's done for you. And God blesses that in a very vibrant church is born because the Lord is working in the hearts of many in this city that is just known for its moral depravity. And look at verse 26. Um, after, after the church in Jerusalem hears of this and they send Barnabas to go check it out, it says, and in Antioch, this is the second part of verse 26 of our text, it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And this is the first time that followers of Christ are called Christians. In, in history here. This is the first recorded instance in history. Before this, they were called followers of the way. Um, they were disciples, the brethren. They had various, the saints, various names for themselves. This is the first time they're called Christians because the church at Antioch was so visible to its community. It was so obviously different and so obviously not in line with the cultural currents and even probably the philosophical, the social currents that, were, that ran in Antioch, the church that is born there is so visibly counter that, preaching a message that's so completely different that the people of Antioch are like, we, we need a new category for these guys. Like, we don't know what to call them. And so they come up with Christian. And now... Nowadays, when, when people hear the word Christian, they think all sorts of things, some of it good, some of it bad. It maybe evens itself out to a relatively neutral term. Um, most people think of it more as like a, a mild identifier of themselves, but they don't really practice it. But at this point in history, Christian is derogative. Um, Christian just means the people of Christ, um, and it's not meant as a compliment. It's meant as, as an insult. It's meant to say, oh, you Christians, you people of Christ, you, like, it's not a compliment. And this is significant that they're called the people of Christ. Look back with me at verse 20 of our text. This is still Acts 11. Um, Again, at the last part. It says that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. It doesn't say that they preached self-help. They didn't preach moralism. They didn't preach Judaism. They didn't preach good deeds. They didn't tell the people of Antioch, hey, you're really messed up. 
you need to like kind of clean up your act and then you can come to Jesus and, and everything will be okay. They didn't preach healings. They didn't preach living your best life now. They preached Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, he reminds the Corinthians that when he came to them, he preached nothing to them except Christ and him crucified. And this is found in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, if you want to go look at it. But the gospel hinges on the person, life, and death of Jesus Christ and no one else. You think of a door. A door needs hinges to be even considered a door. Likewise, the gospel hinges on Jesus. It needs Jesus for it to be the gospel. And that's what they, that's all they preached. They, they started with Jesus and that's what they preached. And Paul follows up his statement in 1 Corinthians 2, if you go and look at it, um, just by emphasizing that he didn't come to them with eloquent speech and wisdom. He didn't come with like, here's the top 10 reasons why you should become a Christian today. It sounds like a BuzzFeed article, but... He didn't, he, he didn't come with that. He didn't come with his learned wisdom. And Paul was well-educated. He was one of the best-educated people of his time. But rather, he preached Christ and him crucified. And he, he says he did this, lest the cross of Jesus be emptied of its power. Because the power of the gospel is in the person of Jesus and what he did. It's not in our intellect, our apologetics, our good works. No, this is... It's in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to preach first and foremost. And that's what's going to save people. That's how people are either going to accept it or reject it. And that's not up to us. But the message we preach is Christ and him crucified. And that he came to live and to die for us. To offer salvation for our sins which we have committed against a holy and righteous God. Jesus came to be a sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice, the sacrifice on our behalf. Everything else is second, secondary to this. That's the good news we preach. And notice too that we're not given the names of those who, who went up there to, to Antioch and started sharing their faith and everything. We're not told who they were. These men and women are anonymous. We don't have their names. We don't, we don't know. And I think, that's, I think that's intentional on the part of Luke. I think maybe we might have held them up to uh, maybe put them on a pedestal, made, some sort of, uh, made up some sort of unattainable standard in our head because of them, when really they were just faithfully doing what they'd been called to do, and the Lord blessed that work. And so before we keep going, I, before I go to the next point, I want to draw some, just some principles and applications for us, just from what we've already seen, because again, there's so much here. And so just the first, first question I want to ask, are you content to live in faithful obscurity? Are you content to live in faithful obscurity? We serve God for his glory, not for ours. God calls some people throughout history to be recognized, to be considered great, as it were. People who are good preachers, who have really far-reaching ministries and long impacts, like people still study Jonathan Edwards or Spurgeon. These guys have been dead for a long time. But these are the exceptions. These are far and away the exceptions. These are not the rules. For most of us, we're not going to be really remembered beyond our immediate life, and even then, really only by our family and by some people close to us. Most of us are not going to be well-remembered after about 100 years. Like, I, I know my great-grandfather's name on my father's side, and that's it. I don't know who my mother's grandparents were. I don't even know their names. Not entirely sure where they lived. So, we live and we work f for God's glory here, not for ours. Our measure of success is not how many people we share the gospel with, how many people God allows us to see come to faith. It's not how big our social media following is. It's not any other measure that we can think of. 
that's somehow numerical, our standard, our measure of success is were we faithfully obedient to God? Are we content to live faithfully in obscurity? Our measure of success is were we faithful, were we obedient? And that's it. And that's, that's the standard of success and that should be our standard as individuals. That should be my standard. That should be your standard. And also for us as a church, our standard should be not how many people we draw in, but it should be the people that God's given us. Are they faithful to God? Are they obedient to God? Are they pursuing God? Are they clinging on to God? It would be better that we had five obediently faithful members than that we had a hundred members who didn't care and just kind of showed up and who were seat warmers. And so my second question is, how can Lofstofan, so this is really addressed at the members here, how can we as a church, how can Lofstofan be a visible church and plot twist in the time of COVID? <laughs> and what I mean by this is the, the church of Antioch was so clearly countercultural that the people of Antioch, the non-believers, they coined a new term for the believers who were living among them. And so how are we known in our immediate community? How are we known to our neighbors? Like how is Lofstofan known to the people of Kopavogur? Is it known? And you might be thinking, well, hold on, wait a minute. You just asked if I was willing to live faithfully in obscurity and now you're asking if I'm known. Hold on now. And if you're thinking that, then you're paying attention. So this is good. But I don't mean to be well known around the world. I don't mean, oh, we need to build up a, a Twitter following or, you know, I don't mean that. I just mean, are we known for our good deeds? Do our good deeds shine before men so that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven? That's what I'm asking. I just, I'm asking the sphere of influence that God has given us. Are we faithful with that? Are we visible within that? Are we loving and serving the people in that? And so what would it look like for Lofsofan to love Kopavogor well, to love Reykjavik well, to love Iceland well? How can we as individuals help do that? Not thinking, oh, the, the church, some vague notion of the church will do that, but how can we as individuals do that? How can we be a visible church? The church of Antioch was visible in their community and that's, what we, that's one thing we, we need to strive for. We need to be visibly distinct from the world around us. Now look back with me at our text. Um, again, Acts 11. Now we're in verse 22. It says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, many commentators read verse 22 sensing a bit of urgency uh, from the church in Jerusalem. You know, so, it's, now this, this is not explicit in the text, but you remember they confront Peter, um, just previously in this chapter, Gunnar preached on that last week. They confront Peter, they're like, wait, you, they're not even worried about the baptisms and the faith, they're just really down and worried about like, you went into the house of a Gentile, like what? And Peter defends this, he's like, no, God showed me this vision, he showed me that people we may think are unclean are actually not. Like, the gospel is for everyone. And they, they accept that. They say, okay, then God's got the gospel for the Gentiles as well. He, he intends the gospel to go to the Gentiles as well. But often when we <laughs> learn something, when God challenges us on something, I don't know about you, but I don't always change my mind right away. Even if I know God's right, I don't necessarily my thinking doesn't just magically shift the other way and we're good to go. Unfortunately, I'm stubborn and prideful and I still need some time. And God often graciously gives it to me, even though I don't deserve it. And I think that's probably a little bit what we're seeing here in the Church of Jerusalem. I'm, yeah, I, this isn't made explicit. I'm basing this mostly off what commentators are observing, but 
the church in Jerusalem gets wind of what's happening up in Antioch. I mean, this was a, a big deal. People were like, dang, have you heard about this, this, these Christians? People are going, what's a Christian? Um, and they were probably quite shocked to hear of a church of Gentile believers. They already weren't thrilled with the idea of Cornelius being saved, and he was practicing Judaism when an angel appears to him and tells him to go get Peter. But they send Barnabas up. Um, they send him to Antioch going, all right, well, <laughs> good luck. And he finds a church of new believers. And what's his reaction? Because this is really important. It says in verse 23 of our text, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Let that sink in for a moment. He was glad. Now, usually, not all the time, but usually, new believers don't immediately like their, their behavior doesn't change right away. And I think sometimes we wrongly focus on behavior modification as opposed to, hey, follow Jesus. I remember I had the privilege of seeing uh, someone in college come to, come to Christ. And for the, next, for the first like three months of this person's walk, they would still swear. They would still do a lot of things. They just they hadn't been convicted of yet. But they were reading their Bible. They were, they were pursuing Jesus earnestly. Like this person really, really wanted to know God and to be known by God. And I remember being so tempted to just give this person pretty much a long list of morals of like, hey, okay, okay, so you're a Christian now, so that means do this. That's not the gospel. And I was counseled and encouraged to just be patient with this person, to just let them keep growing, not overwhelm them. And sure enough, about three months in, this person would tell me, would tell others, would say, yeah, I just, I've, God's convicted me of this and I just, I need to stop. And just, it was literally like night and day. <laughs> it wasn't like some general fading out, it was just night and day. This person would stop. And some behaviors, some sin problems, of course, took longer than others. Some of them were more, per, like, this person's still being sanctified. They're not perfect. You and I are still being sanctified. We're not perfect. But within a year of this person being saved, most people couldn't tell that they hadn't been a Christian most of their life. And that was because God and the Holy Spirit were working in, in their hearts. Sanctification is a process that will take us the rest of our lives. And Barnabas probably arrived at Antioch to a scene of recently converted idol worshipers who were part of a really morally messed up culture in Antioch. And the thing is, is like Jesus sets us free from that, like by his blood on the cross. But I think we, you and I both know that we still struggle with sins of the world. Like we're still drawn to those sometimes like our flesh is. And we don't want to be maybe, but our flesh is still drawn to them. And so imagine this for new believers, like who don't have anyone to really guide them. You know, Barnabas, he arrives, and I'd be willing to bet that he could have found so much wrong with these people. I bet he could have found so many things to criticize, to nitpick, to rebuke them over. But, it says he was glad because the grace of God was evident in these people's lives. And so he chose to trust the work that he could see, the evidence he could see that God was working in them. He chose to trust the sovereignty of God and to encourage them. It would have been easy for Barnabas to get there. He would have seen what was happening. He could be excited, like, great, God's doing something. And now I need to make you these, you know, pseudo-Jews, basically. Like, you have to do this, so don't do these. Do these things. Like, it would have been really easy for him to be like, okay, behavior modification, go. And maybe he would have even meant well by it. Like, I, you know, I want to see you love God more. 
But he didn't. He would have put them down really quickly by pointing out all their flaws. He would have discouraged them. Brothers and sisters, how quick are you to point out someone's flaws to them instead of encouraging them? And now, as I'm saying this, I actually just realized that I skipped my second point. Like, I didn't tell it to you, even though we're, well, we're, we are well into it. And so this will serve as my transition to the second point, is that brothers and sisters in the faith encourage one another. And so what is your default response when you see someone? It's obvious that God's at work in their life. And so often we, maybe we, like, in the name of trying to encourage someone and trying to build someone up, we really just tear them down. We nitpick their flaws. We don't see the logs in our own eyes. And we focus on the specs in theirs. And sometimes, yes, we do need to, we need to hold each other accountable. That's part of our covenant with one another. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we hold each other accountable. We, you know, we love one another. We help restore one another who is caught in sin and trespass. But is our, is your default response to nitpick and criticize? Is that my default response? I'm going to tell you right now, the answer for me is yes. I naturally see the things that need to be criticized and changed before I see the good, before I see the evidences of God's grace. At least I focus on the nitpicking more. Those are my default answers. Those are my sinful answers. And I've needed and need to continue repenting of them. Are those your default responses and answers? Is that your default mode? And if it is, I urge you to repent and ask that God would give you eyes to see how you can encourage your brothers and sisters to see the good that God is doing in their lives and how you can appropriately affirm the work that God is doing in them while, yes, helping guide them away from sin because we need that from each other. That's why God gives us to each other. How can we encourage and exhort one another? It's not hard to find people who will tear you down but it is hard to find people who will consistently build you up and affirm the work that God is doing in your life. Now, I do want to give an important caveat to this. I am not telling you or encouraging you to be yes people. I'm not saying don't use discernment. I'm not saying go along with whatever anybody wants to do and just trust that somehow God will get them out of it. Lord willing, he will, but we also can judge with right judgment. And maybe, maybe you've had a friend who's like, well, you're my friend and they make an appeal to your friendship so that you'll support whatever decision it is they want to make, even though you know that decision's a bad one. And they probably, probably know it too. Maybe they don't, but they probably know it too. But sometimes you maybe hear a friend say, well, you're my friend. I would just expect that you would be happy for me and support me and this decision. And it's like, well, I do love you. I do want to support you. Not in this, though. And so I'm not saying you need to be yes people. Um, but I am challenging you, and I'm challenging me, to be intentionally looking for how we can, in a godly way, affirm, build up, and encourage our brothers and sisters, because we have a Christian duty to do that. This is how our churches should be characterized, that we are actually building one another up. Again, it's really not hard to find people to tear you down. I don't think I'd have to convince you of that. But what a breath of fresh air it is when someone comes along to build you up and to encourage you. So the church in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas. He gets there. Luke records that he's glad. He exhorts the new believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, that's verse 23. He encourages what he sees them doing well by the grace of God instead of immediately critiquing what they're doing poorly. You know, Barnabas also probably knows that once the initial excitement of being a Christian wears off, you know it's fun when you, when, when you first 
become a Christian, you've, you know, you've joined something new, you're like feeling great, like I've been forgiven, this is awesome. And then maybe a month or so in, you're kind of like, okay. And then kind of you come down off that mountaintop. And it would probably be tempting for these young Christians to be kind of sucked back into the currents of culture that surround them. And Barnabas knows that. He knows that it would be tempting. It's probably still tempting for him on some level. And so he encourages them to persevere, to endure in remaining steadfast before the Lord. And don't we all need that encouragement? Don't we all need someone to just gently and graciously exhort us, to encourage us to remain steadfast in the Lord? We're all surrounded by so many voices and external pressures that are vying for our attention, for our worship. And it can be really easy to just kind of lose track of where we are. And these voices, they can be really obvious ones, like Netflix. Or they can be a lot more subtle. They can be good things, like your work, your career, even your family. Both both the subtle and the obvious ones can easily and quickly turn you and turn me from our steadfast from our steadfast pursuit of the Lord if we're not careful. And so brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to stay close to Christ. As John MacArthur puts it, he says practice his presence. It's a very MacArthurian thing for him to say, but practice his presence because our greatest joy and satisfaction are found in Jesus and we know that the enemy wants to take that away from us. He wants our joy and satisfaction to be in anything other than Jesus. It could literally be anything as long as it's not Jesus. The enemy would be happy. And so we know that he's putting forth all his energy and effort to taking that away from us. And so we need to be on guard. And so how do we practice Jesus' presence, being in the presence of Jesus. Well, we know that we've had the seeds of eternal life planted in us. Jesus uses this metaphor in Luke 8, verse 11 specifically. And in that verse, he says that the word, meaning the word of God, that's the seed. That's what is going to grow in us. That's what's going to, yeah. And so we, we cling to the word to the words of Jesus because they are the words of eternal life. And that's the exhortation we all constantly need. It's just, hey, brother, sister, remain steadfast. Persevere before the Lord. Let me pray with you. Let me, yeah. Let's, you know, I was reading this this morning and this built me up. Maybe it'll build you up. And this is what Barnabas and Saul constantly preach to the churches. We'll see this as we go through Acts. Constantly, this is what's being preached. They encourage the saints to be steadfast before the Lord, or some variation of that sentence. And brothers and sisters, I also want to remind you the good news that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's grace for your failures, for my failures, for our shortcomings, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Barnabas is at Antioch. He's encouraging the young church. And then look at verse 24. We get Luke kind of records some of, some of Barnabas' character. We get to see some of this. Verse 24 says, For he, that's Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, it's important that Luke points this out. It's important that Luke spends some time telling us about Barnabas because remember we said the character of the church reflects the character of its members and now going hand in hand with that uh, this isn't a main point of mine or anything I'm just this is going hand in hand with this is the character of the church's leaders have a significant impact on the character of the church as well and even on how the members would comport themselves and so I want to make a, I want to do a quick aside here just about, about church government, um, just to both kind of remind, remind us what we, what we believe, and also just if you're not a part of Lofstofan, I think this will be helpful. So at Lofstofan, we believe that the scriptures teach what's known as congregationalism. Um, so that means the, the members of the church, those who, are, who have committed, who have covenanted together, 
uh, to this local church, they have the final say and authority in matters of church discipline and in matters of doctrine. So at Lostofan, we are elder-led, but congregation, congregationally governed. Um, and so the elders lead, like they teach, they lead, they, uh, as Paul puts it in, in Ephesians, the, the point for elders and for preachers and teachers and apostles is to equip the saints for ministry. Um, and so the elders do have authority to lead the congregation, um, but the congregation is not just playing a passive role either. They, the members of this church, have a responsibility and have a, a, a duty even in matters of church discipline and in matters of doctrine. And also, and kind of wrapped up within that, you know, the elders of Lostofan, we're, we're sheep too. Like, we are under shepherds to the king's shepherd, but we're still sheep. We didn't graduate somehow to rams or something. I don't know. I don't know what the upgrade would be, but we, didn't, we don't graduate from that. We're still sheep, and we still need we still need to be held accountable. We still need to be encouraged. We still need, you know, we're, we're still sheep. Um, and, so, and the congregation has the authority and indeed the mandate. You know, if Gunnar and I start preaching the prosperity gospel, you need to get us out. You need to not let us remain as your leaders. The members of Lostofan have a responsibility to keep an eye, to keep a watch on one another. Like, and to keep a watch on their leaders like like hey how are you how are you doing like you know it can be really easy to assume oh that they're elders they're okay it's like not necessarily and so it means the congregation must be active in the life of the church not content to leave the church like the runnings of the church just to the elders or just to a couple people but they actually the members have to take their covenant to one another seriously. A covenant means a promise. We here at Lovstefan, those of us who are members, we have all promised to each other that we will encourage one another, that we will build one another up, that we will confront each other if, if we think the other one is sinning, that we will gather together as we're able, like regularly. Those are, and that's just, those are just some of the things we've promised to each other. And so, the, the Bible does not teach passive church attendance. You just kind of show up, get your, get your fix, and then go for the week. No, this is an active membership. It's what we should be. Because the character of the church reflects the character of its members, and the character of the church's leaders have a significant impact on the character of the church. And so with that in mind, notice that Barnabas is described as being full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He is a godly man. He trusts in the work that God is doing. He trusts the sovereignty of God in this situation. And notice also that Luke starts in verse 24. He says, for, so we're gonna read 23 and 24 again for that to all make sense. It says, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That word for could also be because. It has a, it's a causation. Barnabas is glad, and he encourages the young church because he is a godly man and is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And these go hand in hand. Barnabas' ability to trust in God's work, to be an encourager, these stem from his being filled with the Holy Spirit and of faith. These originate from, these come from his fighting to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith, cling to Jesus, cling to his word, cling to the word with all your strength. And at the same time, Barnabas sees a young church in need of help and guidance. And so he stays to teach them and to help shepherd them. And furthermore, Barnabas quickly realizes that he needs help. He realizes this young church needs help. Like he comes to encourage them, but they also need some guidance. Like, yeah. But he also knows that he needs help. And so look, it says in, in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus 
to look for Saul. Ministry is not meant to be done alone. The task of leading is not meant to be done alone. Circumstances do sometimes force a pastor or someone in ministry to work alone for a season. Like sometimes those are the circumstances and God works through that. But the, the ideal, what we strive for is to not have to do these things alone. Barnabas would most likely have been very quickly driven into the ground with just the weight of teaching and instructing and, and just, yeah, feeding this new church. You know, think of just the people that needed to be taught on, on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, all the new baptisms, all the probably Bible studies or whatever they did throughout the week. They probably didn't have Bible studies the way we think of them, but everything that happened throughout the week and all the questions, all the maybe uh, like conflicts, things that, ar- that just arise and people just don't know what to do. He couldn't be the only one. And so he goes to get Saul because he knows that he's limited and he wants to see this church succeed for the glory of God, not his own glory. So he goes to get Saul. And it may not appear this way on the surface, but Barnabas going to get Saul to come help him is actually him encouraging Saul in his own gifts and in the ways that God has blessed Saul and worked through him. Remember, so Saul, who will later be called Paul, so if I say Paul on accident, just know I'm talking about the same person. Um, remember that Saul, when he comes to faith, is mistrusted by the Jews, um, or I'm sorry, by the disciples and by the, by the apostles, by the church. But it's Barnabas who actually believes him and who believes that God has actually done a work in him. And so Barnabas kind of acts as a mediator between Saul and the church. And then so at this point, it's been about 10 years since Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, which we read about in Acts 9. And so he's had time to develop, to develop his gifts, to learn, to, to just walk with God and grow in his faith. And Barnabas seems to immediately think of Saul when he's like, okay, new church, new believers, I need help. It seems to be that Saul seems to be like the first guy that pops into his head. And so he goes. Um, Tarsus is about 100 miles away from Antioch, so he was gone probably a solid week or maybe more um, to go get Saul. And he brings Saul to this place, also probably knowing that Saul is more gifted at preaching and teaching than he is. Like Barnabas is known as an encourager. He's a good man. And Paul is very much known, or I'm sorry, Saul is very much known for like just his defense of the faith. His, you know, he can instruct, he can teach, you know. And so Barnabas is also kind of giving He's making room for like the various ways that God has gifted his brother. And he's not trying to take any of the like recognition that would come with that. He makes room for him. And indeed, this is the case. So the next couple times that Luke talks about both of these men, he does say Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Saul, but then very quickly it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And most of the time when we hear of this, we think Paul and Barnabas because that's what happens. But Barnabas goes and gets help. And for the next year, it says, so it says in verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. He and Saul teach and shepherd the young church and they help raise up more leaders to the point that when a famine arises, as we're about to see, the, the elders in Antioch send Barnabas and Saul. The church is in such a place that they can send out Barnabas and Saul without fearing for the health and continuity of the church. And this leads me to my final point today, that the church must be missional. And so as we consider how the character of the church reflects the character of its members, we've seen that the church must be visibly distinct, and we've seen how brothers and sisters in Christ encourage one another and exhort one another. And our final point today is that the church must be missional. We're not hermits. We're not some pious community too busy to bother with the outside world. The church is to be visible, and that means the church much, must be missional. So let's read the, the last few verses of our passage. Verse 27 of Acts 11, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So the Church of Antioch becomes known for its missions, for its missional focus. This is actually the church that winds up sending Paul and Barnabas off initially, and he returns here frequently, as we'll see throughout Acts. And now, one of the prophets stands up and says, hey, there's going to be a famine. And what happens? The disciples at Antioch think of their brethren in Judea, whom they probably haven't met, by the way, and there isn't Zoom or Facebook or anything to connect them. The people at Antioch think of their brethren in Judea who presumably don't have the means to weather a famine right now. And consider this for just a moment because this is actually quite astounding. This is still a young church. They've, they've been going for no more than 18 months at this point. Like We're not sure quite the, the times between when Barnabas goes up and when kind of the church started. But they're, they're a young church. They're a Gentile church, predominantly at least. Whereas the church in Judea is Jewish, like Jewish converts. And remember that Jews and Gentiles really didn't get along. Jews thought Gentiles were unclean and there were similar sentiments of just like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, and they didn't get along very well. So this young Gentile church, though, immediately proposes to send relief to their brothers when they hear that there's a need. What a reversal of just previous prejudices. It's pretty crazy. Look at how these are young believers just putting into practice what they've been told. Like Barnabas and, and Saul have been teaching them the words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when people ask, when someone asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, it's anyone who needs help. It's the people God's put immediately in front of you who need help. And so they put that into practice. The gospel has broken down the dividing racial lines. And now they serve their family in Christ when there is a need. And notice how, just how quickly this seems to happen. It seems to be just pretty like, go, go, go. They hear. They respond quickly in faith. Each is their able. And notice that what is important here is not how much they give. It's not a monetary amount. But it's that their hearts are desiring to be obedient to God and to help their brethren in Judea, to help meet the needs of their brothers. Are you quick to respond to needs like this? Am I? Whether they're financial needs, personal needs, emotional, whatever, whatever type of need you can think of. Are you quick to respond with a cheerful heart? Or do you hear about it and have to think about it for a while before you give some grudging help? Or do you think that's a perfect job for someone else? They should meet that need. Are we the type of church that is quick to respond to the obvious needs that God brings right before us? Especially those who are of the family of faith. And notice in verse 30 who the church at Antioch chooses to send. This is actually really crazy. It says, and they did so, that's sending relief, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, their primary teachers for the last year. Now, I know I already pointed that out, but I, I, I want to expand this a little further as we consider that the church needs to be missional. Barnabas and Saul have been teaching and shepherding this church for a year now. When Barnabas got there, most likely chaotic, a lot needed to be corrected. But here we are a year later, the church is healthy, it's stable, and enough so that they can send their two best to do this. And the church isn't in danger of falling apart. Like Barnabas and Saul don't seem concerned that like in their absence, like, you know, bad things are going to happen. In order for the church to be missional, the church needs to not be dependent on a small group of people or even one person to make everything happen. I already said this earlier, but I'll, I'll say it again. Preachers, teachers, apostles, elders are given to the church in order to equip the saints for ministry. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Ministry is not meant to be done by a small group of elite people. If you're a Christian, that means if you've accepted Jesus as your, both your Lord and your Savior, if you have taken your place as a sinner who needs to repent, who needs to be forgiven, not because of anything you've done, but only by the grace 
and mercy offered to you by Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are called to belong to a church. Lone wolf Christians are not what scripture commands. That's not the example we're given in scripture. If you're a Christian, you are called to practice the one another's that Jesus commanded. Jesus said that the the whole law and the prophets could be summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments, the entire Bible hinges. And if you're a Christian, you're called to ministry regardless of where God has you in life. You are called to be discipled and you are called to make disciples. That is, you're called to grow in your love for God and obedience to him and you're called to help others do the same. Any Christian can do this. This is not for the elites. You could literally have been born again yesterday and you can help do this by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, regardless of your profession, regardless of your education level, regardless of your social status. For the church to be missional, the saints need to be equipped for the work of ministry. The church needs men and women who are equipped to handle the word rightly, who can help others grow in their faith and in their walk with God. The church in Antioch could send out their very best because they were corporately equipped with individuals who could step up and lead. And so, to the members of Lofstohan, individually, are you consistently in prayer asking that God would raise up both men and women to be leaders in our midst? Have you asked God what he would have you do? We've just seen some of our members go with Redeemer City to go help be a part of that church plant. Have you seriously considered whether God would have you help plant a church here in Iceland? We claim as a church that we want to see churches planted here. We want to see more. We want to see Icelandic churches raised up. We want to see Icelanders raised up. Well, to do that, well, we, need, we need God to work, but we also need to be available and ready. And so have you considered that? Are you available for the Lord? Are you prayerfully available for the, for the Lord? Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers. And so, just to kind of wrap up, the character of the church reflects the character of its members. The church is Jesus' chosen instrument to grow his kingdom here on earth. And we can glean a lot from the example of the church at Antioch, of how the church is the visible gospel witness here on earth. And so, First, the church is visible in its local community. The people of Antioch had to invent a new category for the believers in their midst. And second, we have a Christian duty to encourage one another and build one another up, and this should be a key mark of our churches. People should walk in and go, wow, you guys are different. And third, the church has to be missional. We can't think only inward. We have to think outwardly outwardly as well. But for the church to be effectively missional, the church has to be equipped for ministry. It cannot simply rely on a small group of religious elites. And so, what would it look like for Lustafan to be characterized by this? How could we as a church do this better, both corporately and individually? But I want to leave you with, there is abundant grace for us. Remember that. God is sovereign Jesus will build his church and you and I are going to fail every single day. We're not going to do something right. And there's grace for that. Jesus is going to build his church, not us. But we get the privilege of taking part in this, in this great work. Regardless of where you are in life, regardless of the career path God's got you on, we get to be a part of this work. And so pray with me. Let's repent of our own personal failures and our corporate failures. Let us plead with our Lord and our Father to raise up more laborers in this country and in our midst as a local church. And so, so pray with me. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you that it's not dependent upon us or upon our performance whether or not your will is done. Thank you that you will accomplish your purposes and thank you for the privilege of being part of that work. Forgive me for not trusting your sovereignty. Forgive me for not trusting that you are at work. 
Help us as a church to be more visible in our local community. Help us to be more encouraging to one another. And God, please help us to be more missional as a church. Forgive us for how we've failed in all three of these areas. I pray for Lustelfan. I pray that you would raise up more leaders from among us that we might be able to send out more people to plant more churches. Please bless us in this way. And may we be faithful to persevere in steadfast love and purpose before you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.